0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, So good to see you here today. And uh, before I get into our message today, I just want to say this. We do have some openings for Stations of the Cross tonight. This is our last performance tonight. So if you and your family have not been able to go out to it, uh, we certainly uh, have some space for you. You can go online and uh, reserve a spot Before you leave today, in fact, or if you just feel like, hey, let's go out and see what this is all about, we'll fit you in somewhere. We will definitely fit you in. And we have hot chocolate, all right, so no reason not to come out and enjoy that and be reminded of what this season is all about. Now, this is our third week of. Hope is Here, and in this series, we've been discovering all the ways that God brings us hope in the face of a world that truly can be hopeless at times. The first week, we talked about how Jesus brings us hope when we are weary from the heaviness of life and how we don't have to walk this course alone. We have each other. We have the Holy Spirit with us the second week we talked about the hope that comes from the grace of jesus when we are broken because of sin and how we can be forgiven because god has offered that forgiveness to us through christ and that too is all about this season and what jesus did for us on the cross Today, we want to talk about the hope that is given to us when we feel like we're facing more than we can handle, maybe what seems like insurmountable odds, and we are the underdog. There's a reason that so many of us love uh, classic movies in our culture, movies like, think about this, uh, Rudy or Rocky or Cinderella Man or even Cool Runnings, okay? Uh, We we love them because they have this common thread or theme. They're all movies about underdogs. Think about your favorite movies. Almost all of them have some underdog theme or underdog character within them. And we love to root for the underdog, don't we? Isn't that the way we we love to do? Even in this recent March Madness. Okay, I don't know how many of you even watched any of it, but for those who followed the tournament, all I need to say is St. Pete's, right? Everybody that watched it knows what I'm talking about. Can you believe the run that that small school, that team that represented that small school had? They were the number 15 seed in their bracket. In the first round, they beat the number two seed and a lot of people's favorite for winning it all, the University of Kentucky. In the first round, that happened. And then the number seven seed they beat in the second round, Murray State. And the third seed, Purdue, went down in the third round. They became the first 15 seed to ever make it to the Elite Eight. That's a pretty amazing thing when you consider where they come from. If they weren't playing your team, you were rooting for the Peacocks, right? Their team from New Jersey City, New Jersey, they play at Run Baby Run Arena <laughs> in front of 3,200 fans, 3,200 fans. That's smaller than ECU. Its total undergraduate enrollment is 2,355 students. Compare that to 30,000 students at the University of Kentucky who they took down in the first round. They have no five-star players, and yet they kept everyone spellbound by the idea that such a small school could go so far. It reminds me of another favorite movie, Hoosiers. Anybody ever watch that? Maybe these movies and teams do something to us because at some level all know what it feels like to face overwhelming circumstances and that we can't overcome these things on our own. We cheer for the underdog because somehow we feel like an underdog a lot of times in life. In fact, even psychologists have studied this phenomenon and they agree that it is natural to root for the underdog. In a Vox article from March of 2015, Joseph Stromberg researched the science behind our love for the underdog. A UC San Diego researcher, Nadav Goldschmidt, theorized that this is the expression of schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Schadenfruda I didn't even know how to say it Until Dennis told me this morning Schadenfruda Do y'all know what that means? Do y'all know what Schadenfruda means? I like saying it though (laughs) Schadenfruda Tell Miss Rosie we're using (laughs) You know I didn't know what it meant either Until I was studying It it is the pleasure we experience Due to the misfortune of others (laughs) Isn't that sort of schadenfreude. <laughs> We schadenfreude? We resent powerhouse teams that win every year and we love to root against them. Another theory is that we want the world just to be fair. Because some teams have a lot more resources, we may feel like it just isn't fair. And so we want the less resource team to get some revenge, right? But the thing that was also true is that we don't want to get our hopes up. People tend to get more joy out of wins that were unexpected than the expected ones. Do you feel like that sometimes? Where you were expecting the worst and then you got the best? I mean, that's a great feeling. The underdog has less to lose because they aren't expected to win. And a lot more to gain if they do win. All of this is true until your team plays the underdog. Am I right? (laughs) Now, if our team is the underdog, that puts us in the no-lose situation. But unless, of course, it's more than a game, unless it's life or death, unless it's life-changing and not just some game we're watching on TV. But if that underdog is playing your team, it changes. Now, I'm going to tell you, I was rooting for St. Pete's. I was so glad to see them take Kentucky down. Oh, my goodness, I was cheering just like they were my team until they played my team. (laughs) Because they played my team in the Elite Eight, the Tar Heels. Of course, I was glad we beat them. But I was very happy to root for them in every game before that. And if they had beaten us, I think I would have continued to root for them. But the research simply tells us what we already know. We love to root for the underdog. But the truth is, again, we often feel like the underdog. Have you ever felt like an underdog? It might be an underdog in life or it might be an underdog in a particular situation. Have you ever felt like the odds were against you? You know, sports isn't a life or death kind of thing. But what about when you were in a very serious underdog situation? I've seen situations as I've tried to help people over the years that there are plenty of underdogs in our world. People who are financially impoverished. I mean, if you don't have resources, you are an underdog. People who have no power. And by that, you know, people who are uneducated or people that are homeless. People who are dealing with a serious disease where it seems like the odds are against them. I think all of us, have known people, or maybe we've experienced it ourselves where we've been the underdogs. And in our text today, we read about a real underdog. But this encounter was truly a life or death fight. He was only a young boy when he decided to go toe-to-toe with a giant. And all of you already know who we're going to talk about. Everyone else was too afraid to fight because it seemed like uh, there's no way they were going to beat this giant. And they were right. I mean, on their own, by their own power, that giant was definitely going to take them out. The only way that battle could be won was by trusting in God to intervene. And on his own, David knew the same was true. He was an underdog. But with God, he could be an overcomer. There's no enemy, friends, that you can face in this life that God cannot give you the victory over. I want you to believe that when you leave here today if you didn't believe it when you came in. You must trust in God. When the church comes together in great faith, there is nothing that the church cannot do. If it's in the name of God, for the glory of God, nothing we can't do. The Israelites were fearful until David stepped up in faith. And sometimes a community of believers needs someone to step up in faith, to be that first person to say, I'll face that giant. The step of faith can ignite others to follow. So here is what we all need to remember. If God is for me, there is nothing I can't overcome. Would you say that with me? If God is for me, there is nothing I can't overcome. Now, it doesn't mean that God's going to take all of your problems away, but you are going to be able to overcome whatever it is you're facing. Life is full of daunting situations, isn't it? Parenting children can feel like an incredibly overwhelming job right parents navigating global pandemics can be more than we can sometimes handle on our own juggling careers and family can be hard to do as well growing in your faith and defeating sinful habits how about that is that a challenge I would agree this is because there are things that are meant not to be done alone. And most of those things we need help with. And again, the Bible is full of stories of characters who against all odds experience victory. There's a common thread throughout the Bible of these stories as well. The characters are all fully aware that without God on their side... There's no hope of a favorable outcome. Left to themselves, they would definitely be defeated. One of the classic stories is that underdog story of David. And that account takes place long before David has become king of Israel. At this point, he is just a young boy. So we go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we begin in verse 20. We read early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse, his father, had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their battle lines, facing each other. So I want you just to get this, image in your mind just hours before david arrives at the front lines of this massive conflict between the israelites and the philistines he is in the fields taking care of sheep so it's clear from the beginning of the story that david has found himself in a position that we would say is above his pay grade right The first readers of that text would have been overwhelmed by the change of scenery from the grazing fields to the battlefield. Just like that. David teaches us this lesson. We are rarely prepared for the fight. Have you discovered that's true? Many times the fight comes on us before we're ready for it. The truth is that we're hardly ever prepared to handle what life throws at us. It's a phone call with a diagnosis. It's a discovery of infidelity. It's a temptation we didn't see coming. No one asks to be placed in a position where there is no clear route to victory. And this is where David found himself within the first verses. And it might be where you are today. When we find ourselves in this place, we need some kind of hope. You know, life has a tendency of throwing stuff at us when we least expect it. And life doesn't ask us if we're ready for something to happen, does it? Trouble doesn't wait for us to say, Okay, I'm ready. You can hit me now. It's not happening. On October the 25th, 2010 a massive earthquake, uh, set off a tsunami that struck some of the Indonesian islands. The tsunami leveled whole villages, leaving hundreds of dead and missing. According to the survivors, the deaths could have been avoided or at least minimized. Unfortunately, the tsunami warning system that they had failed. It was two buoys off of the islands, And they weren't working properly. And as a result, they didn't alert the islanders of the coming danger. Since 2004, experts have improved the tsunami detection network. That's D-A-R-T buoys, as they are called. And they measure the wave height. And if a buoy measures an unusual wave, it transmits the information to shore giving people plenty of time and warning that system often provides the only warning signal for islanders to prepare for the oncoming danger but unfortunately in that situation according to the report the buoys have become detached and they drifted away sensors have failed as many as 30 percent have been inoperable at any one time And as a result, the buoys often fail to awaken people to the reality of a tragedy that is on its way. They tried to be prepared, but when the tsunami hit, it caught them by surprise. You know, friends, tsunamis come in different shapes and sizes, don't they? You may think that you were prepared for the bad news from the doctor, but it still takes the wind out of you. You may think you're prepared for the loss of that loved one, but when it happens, it sends you reeling and struggling in the days and the months afterwards. You may think that you were prepared for the bad news from your boss, but when you hear those words, we no longer need you, or we can't afford to keep you, I mean, that can be devastating. You may think you're prepared for the struggles in a relationship when your spouse says, I don't love you anymore. Or even worse, I never really loved you at all. And that will rock your world. You weren't really prepared for the fight or the struggle that was coming. And now, what do you do? And it's at this point in time when we have to decide how we're going to respond. Do we give up and accept defeat and or or do we trust in God to give us the strength to carry on? David arrived at those front lines to check on his brothers who were fighting with the Israelite army. His dad sent him with some supplies and food. I, I think that's probably the way they did it back then. You know, family members would bring food to their families out on the battlefield. And it was at that point that he got the first real look at what the Israelite army was facing. We turn back to our text in verse 23. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man comes, uh, ha- keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's a lot of talk for a young man, right? That's that's what even his brothers were thinking that. But then in verse 32, David is brought to Saul. Saul hears that he's inquiring about this. This young shepherd boy that was in the field that morning and brings David in to see him. And David said to Saul, the king, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Imagine he did say go. Nobody else would go. It took a young man with courage, a young man with faith, a young man who put his trust in God. You can hear in this passage the determination within David. Though he was just a boy, he knew someone had to stand up to this threat and also to this guy who is belittling the God that he served. This threat was a massive man named Goliath. I want you to think about how massive Goliath was. He was certainly a decorated warrior from Philistia. He he struck fear in the hearts of all who saw him. And I bet if you were there, you would be afraid too. I know I would. (laughs) He was a giant. He was terrifying. The Bible says he was over nine feet tall. Think about how big nine feet tall is. He weighed almost 600 pounds. Think Think about if that guy sat on top of you, all right? Do y'all know who Shaquille O'Neal is? I I heard Shaq was just in town like last weekend. He was at Sup Dogs. Did y'all hear that? Shaq was at Sup Dogs. Shaq is two feet shorter than Goliath. Shaq was seven feet one inches tall and in his playing weight, he weighed 324 pounds. He might be up to about 400 by now. I'm not sure. But... He's a a little guy compared to Goliath. So it's easy to see why the whole of the Israelite army was paralyzed with fear. No one was willing to take on this giant. However, someone had to do something and David was willing to be that someone. What causes a young boy, an underdog, to take on such a monumental task? I'll tell you, it is hope. Hope that he would not be fighting this battle alone. Hope that with God's help, there was nothing that was impossible for him. Hope that what little he had to offer was enough for God to do great things with. Do you have that kind of hope? David's reasoning for this hope came from God's faithfulness in the past. God had been with him as he had protected the sheep before Uh, in those fields. He protected them from the lions and the bears. Surely, if God protected him then, God will protect him now. Very rarely are we ready for the fight. But friends, the fight is coming. That's when we need to turn to hope. You see, if God is for us, nothing can stand against us. When we find ourselves in seasons of struggle, sometimes we have to remind ourselves of how God has been with us in the past. Hope comes from trust. When we believe that something or someone is trustworthy, it gives us hope. It's like a child who plays with his parents in the pool. You know, when our girls were little, we, we would get out into the pool and we'd tell them to jump out to us. And and maybe they hadn't uh, understood or realized what would happen if we just said, Whoops, just April Fools, just playing, you Uh, they would just launch themselves from the set. How many of you parents have done that with your kids? Raise your hand if if you've done that. Uh, And and if your kids are way small, it's going to happen, all right? You're going to be standing in that pool. Come on, honey, jump right on out to us. And they jump giggling and laughing because they're not worried. You know why? Because mom or dad is there to catch them. They have no fear. It was fun. There's no concern. There was only trust in Christian and I to catch them. And we always did catch them. I knew better than the April Fool's that. I mean, I, I wanted to go home. But they trusted our love for them, and they were hopeful that they would splash into the water and that we would protect them. And isn't that the way it is with God? We trust Him. We know that time after time... God has caught us. Some of you here today have told me before that you probably shouldn't even be here. With the things that you've been through in life, the struggles that you faced, that you probably should have already passed from this world, but you felt like God spared you. David had that same confidence. That confidence came from God's faithfulness, and it was the drive that he needed to overcome. We go to verse 40, and I love this section. Then he took his staff in his hand. This is speaking about David. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, approached the Philistine. Imagine that giant walking out towards him. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. But boy, I love this part. Uh, He said to David, Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David looked and said to that Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you with the name, in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head this very day. I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, right? Woo, I'm ready to go now. All those gathered here will know that it is not my sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. And that little boy had a lot of faith, didn't he? Saul, the king of Israel at the time, tried to fit David with a bunch of armor and weapons to protect him in the conflict, but none of that fit him. And as if David being a boy didn't make him disadvantaged enough now he's going out to fight this giant with a slingshot and five smooth stones and of course we've read after Goliath breathed out his threats to this little underdog David responded by telling him that though Goliath came with his big sword David probably would have had trouble holding that sword, right? And that big spear and that javelin, he's letting God fight his battle for him. And friends, this is how we fight our battles. Maybe you don't feel equipped to overcome the things that you're facing. If that's you today, then you're in good company. Maybe you know that your trial is way too much for you to be able to handle. Well, that's a good place to start. Because now you realize that you need help. It's only when we realize that our battles are not waged in conventional ways, but rather in the Spirit, that you and I as Christ followers will begin to experience God fighting for us. For David, this was a spiritual battle. And it took God's involvement to experience the victory. You know, Paul speaks to this in Ephesians six twelve. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I hope you realize that you're in a battle. Now, your life might be going along pretty good, But I'm telling you that there is a spiritual battle going on. You might not even see that it's taking place. But Satan wants to destroy you and your family. He wants to get to your children. He wants to get to your grandchildren. He wants to get to you, to destroy you. And God wants to protect you. Paul reminded his readers that our battles are not really about the physical world around us. We can't overcome these battles through a physical means. It takes a spiritual approach. We fight our daunting battles by submitting to the will of God. We fight our most difficult circumstances by bringing them to God in prayer. We fight the evil that we come against by inviting God to intervene on our behalf. Now friend, if you're, choosing, if you're choosing to side with the evil, it's going to be hard for God to intervene. You have to make that choice that you're going to follow God. And you're going to allow God to fight that battle for you. David called upon God as he engaged Goliath on the battlefield. And, the, and we learn that with a single stone, whew, a precise throw, and I would believe the aim of God and the power of God, David's shot flew straight and true and connected right in Goliath's forehead. In fact, it embedded in his forehead. The giant fell to the ground dead. The single victory turned the tide of the entire war. The Philistines ran from the battlefield, and the Israelites pursued them. Let's read in the last couple of verses here, verses 51-52. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword. He drew it from the sheath, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword This may not be the best part to tell your kids. Uh, When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn from Sharaim Road to Gath and Ekron. Suddenly, the once frightened Israelite army has become emboldened by this little boy with his sling. And because of David's bravery and his trust in God, they were all given hope that they too could be part of a triumph of God. And this leads to our last thought today. Hope is contagious. You ever figured that out? You you experience victory with somebody else or you experience hope with somebody else or you see somebody else stand up and you see what God is doing suddenly now you want to be a part of what God is doing David's hope in God spread like wildfire the entire story changed the the entire narrative took a u-turn it was no longer about defeat and hiding you know away from this giant it was now about victory There is something that happens within a fellowship of faith when just one person has the audacity to believe that God is doing great things. The church benefits greatly from just one person with a little hope because hope is contagious and it spreads. Listen, Easter Sunday is next week. And I think about how Jesus seemed like an underdog. If you think about it. Now we know, look, he's God, but the people around him didn't know that. The, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the Roman you know, people that were in charge, they didn't realize really who he was. From a strictly human point of view, he wasn't rich. He didn't lead a vast army. He was not one of the powerful or influential leaders of his nation. He was followed by mostly uneducated common laborers. And the powerful elite, for the most part, rejected Him. So from the standpoint of society, Jesus was the underdog. In fact, He died like an underdog. Those powerful enemies He made would believe that they had defeated Him. He hung on a cross the way a common criminal would die. And He died on that cross for all to see. From a human point of view, Jesus lost. That's not the story that the underdog followers want to hear. But three days later, it all changed, didn't it? No one worships all those so-called powerful men who thought they had defeated Jesus. In fact, we barely remember them. If it wasn't for the Bible, we probably wouldn't even know most of their names. But we remember Jesus, don't we? In fact, no man has ever had such an impact on the history of mankind as Jesus has had. And I would add, no one has ever had such an impact on the eternity of mankind as Jesus has had. Amen? As Jesus makes himself known to his disciples after he rose from the dead, word began to spread. Jesus was with those disciples for 40 days and then he ascended to heaven. Those same disciples would go on out on the day of Pentecost and preach about the risen Savior. These guys who were so scared they didn't want anybody to know they were with Jesus are now out there proclaiming his name. And 3,000 people accepted their message and were baptized in one day. And within a short time, their numbers grew to over 5,000. Their faith and their love for Jesus and for each other was contagious. And friends, it can still be true today. When you love Jesus and you put your faith in Him, that will be contagious. When God is with you, it doesn't matter what the odds are. When God is with you, it doesn't matter who the enemy is. When God is with you, it doesn't matter what people think. When God is with you, you can be victorious. God can do far more in you, with you, and through you than you can even imagine. But it begins with one person in the congregation who believes that God can use them to lift others up. Maybe to lift them up out of poverty. Maybe it starts with one person who wants to see children in the community impacted this summer by a vacation Bible school. And you step up and say, I'll help Denise with that. I'll bring kids in my community to that. I'll invite other families to come to that. It takes one person with a heart for overseas missions. Somebody like a Jennifer Parker. Or that whole team that went to Rwanda that came back inspired, ready to see something happen. That's what it takes. Somebody to step up. It takes one hurt person that believes that prayer changes things. It takes one person with a passion to start a learning center at the church and reach all of these families in our community like Bobby Joe Grinder. It takes one person listening to the call of God to turn a church and a community around. It could be the spark that ignites a whole congregation of hope. And friend, that person could be you. Ancient church father Thomas Aquinas said it this way faith has to do with things that are not seen, and hope with things that are not at hand. Even though you cannot see how God might come through, faith is believing that it is still possible. When a whole church begins to function in that way, that's when the world around that church changes. What areas of your life can you exercise your faith into this week? Whatever battle you're facing, remember, if God is for you, there is nothing you cannot overcome. Father, thank you for giving us hope when we feel like the underdog. Help us to recognize that as long as you are with us we are not the underdog. With you, we will survive. In fact, we will thrive. Father, help us to not listen to the culture that tells us we are nothing. Help us to recognize that in Christ, we are your children. Like David, we can face our giants and we can experience victory. Thank you, Father, for that hope. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.